Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Aisha and a special guest, a friend of Macrovisor, Sachin. How's it going? I'm doing okay, man. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be here and uh, it's really encouraging to see the progress you and Aisha have made over the last few months. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time and the opportunity to chat with you. I know that you're uh, making a bit of an exodus from social media, so we're really glad to catch you before you take some time off. No, it's a pleasure to be, uh, to be with you guys. I think it's always great to hear from uh, the macro views that you and I share. I learn a lot from you. So I'm glad if I could uh, contribute something back. Well, you have plenty to contribute. You've got a, a, a excellent eye, not on not just on oil in the industry, but I've seen a lot of your other content you've posted. Of course, we met originally talking Palantir way back in the day. Uh, <laughs> that dates us a little bit, right? But uh, yeah, no. So this is great. Really glad to have you here. And um, so let's let's fire things off. Aisha, I know you have some uh, questions that you'd like to ask, some areas you'd like to discuss. Why don't you kick things off? Sure. So Sachin and I have been doing uh, oil podcasts, I think, for a while now. So it's good to be back, Sachin, and let's sort of follow our old format of a free-flowing discussion about anything in the oil industry. What do you say? Let's hit it. Excellent. So let's start off a little bit with what we're seeing in the demand side, right? So like short-term demand seems to have started to increase again, Uh one of the reasons that we are seeing pressure on oil prices, I don't think, you know, uh, this year has been an interesting year, not just for oil, but for, you know, global markets in general. And things have not really panned out the way we thought it would. China reopening didn't go the way we thought it would. Europe is having, you know, a warmer summer. Uh, the U.S. Uh, not refilling its reserves. So plenty to talk about there. So why don't we start off with China? What are your thoughts on China and the demand for oil overall? I think I, I agree with you that uh, the recovery in China is being a bit underwhelming. But my understanding is that uh, uh, it will come back on track. We will not see quite like excessive growth in China, but I st I'm still expecting a growth of like 2, 2.5% for this year and next year. Uh, so there will be there will be some at least China will not dumb the market. So that's my base base uh, agenda or baseline about China. U.S. is a bit different in that part. I mean, U.S. is I mean, it will be glad if it, it stays demand stays flat as as best. I mean, given the current administrations and their policies in discouraging more oil use and more oil production, I think that could be the the baseline scenario for that. But China, I expect that uh, they will finally figure out a way to recover and uh, to push uh, some of the demand uh, uh, uphill. So interesting. What do you think about the timelines, though, So, of this kind of recovery? See, uh, my understanding is that China will take another like eight to nine months before uh, this recovery thing settles. And again, I mean, of course, it will depend how the, the real estate works there, what's the monetary policy overall there. Also, I mean, a lot of Chinese economy is dependent over the the export so overall global demand also has to play in the china recovery that is europe and uh, us primarily uh, europe is a major concern to be honest us i'm still expecting the economy to be flat or to improve from here uh, 
but uh, europe is a, is a concern I, in in short term i'm expecting the demand for oil also to get reduced in 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 europe because of their push for renewables and to move away from russian oil and gas uh, also i mean the the policy the way it is doing but whatever demand we lose in europe hopefully in time the china and india will be able to overcome i think one thing which everyone has to be very careful about is that uh, as of today europe and us use 40% of world energy okay and a lot of time we talk about energy transition and we say okay the barrels will convert into kilowatt hours but a lot of these models don't take into account what happens if the energy consumption increases in a developing country so for example i mean if you compare the energy consumption in india versus energy consumption us the difference is if in my head is is a factor of 10 so if india the energy consumption per capita goes two or three times in next 4 5 years uh, there is no way renewables can fulfill it and there is no way oil can fulfill it so it will push uh, uptake demand in mid to long term for actually both of them in short term i mean the demand is going to stay healthy but uh, it may not be able to offset everything that uh, that goes away from us and europe and i think this is where the opec recent production cuts are trying to maintain this this kind of a transition period where uh, there is a less demand from europe and us and in the meantime the demand is kicking in india and china and and, and to be fair i mean india and china energy demand will go up i mean my understanding is at least if these two countries have to become world power their energy demand should go two to three times at least per capita whatever it is today here so if that happens and, and their policies are also very simple these countries are looking for affordable energy okay they don't care whether it's a nuclear whether it's hydro whether it's fossil fuel whether it's renewables uh, they also understand that uh, if it is lot of oil and gas then for strategic uh, positioning it's not good because uh, they need to import a lot so they'll always be dependent over the geopolitics between middle east europe and uh, west in general and uh, it will it's difficult for them to balance their budgets it's uh, difficult for them in any kind of uh, adversarial uh, position that uh, their their choke points for energy import can be blocked especially in china uh, because china i mean in front in pacific they have japan and if i have to come to middle east that's the only one choke point that comes through the chicken like through state of malacca in the north if they move that's the arctic Uh, span across russia so it's not a good position for uh, oil import uh, via offshore and they they are well aware of it so they uh, need to increase their energy consumption and they also need to figure it out that a uh, lot of this new energy consumption has to come come away from sources other than oil however it's not possible i mean oil consumption will increase in both countries in my opinion okay but uh, but yeah i mean there will be a lot of pressure to find other sources as well but in in due time or the demand in in china and india uh, should offset whatever we lose in in europe and in us that's my opinion very interesting um so you think uh, we're we're seeing a surprise in the gdp numbers obviously for the us right and this means that the us economy is still growing quite a bit now we do foresee a recession maybe a milder recession sometime next year but up until then we know that the us needs to refill their spr right uh, what are your thoughts about that so uh, i shall have to be very direct on this and I'll, i don't try to be politically correct the us policy about spr has been a disaster 
Okay, I mean, when 2020 COVID hit, they had excellent opportunity to fill the SPR at a very low prices. Okay, but that particular time when the idea was floated by President Donald Trump, the the response was uh, there's a lot of virtue signaling. The idea was that, okay, they are doing it because they want to help a fossil fuel company. So my thoughts are very simple on this. You don't want fossil fuel company, you go and ban them. If you want them and you are using fossil fuel, then you need to figure it out how to use it in a more responsible way. So for that, you need cheap oil and that cheap oil was not filled. And then what happened is like, if you go back to 2019, 2019, the oil price was dependent over the trinity of uh, Donald Trump, MBS and Putin. These three people and their equations with each other was pretty much was uh, was kind of counterbalancing the oil price. Now, moving forward uh, in 2022, 23, I mean, Putin control on oil price because of Russia, Ukraine conflict is is pretty much gone. Okay, Uh, Biden has not effectively able to replace Donald Trump influence on oil price. I mean, he is not even able to manage the kind of relationship with the Middle Eastern allies that used to be. So pretty much it is opaque and MBS. That is how to decide that where the oil price is. And they are maintaining it close to 80, uh, which because it helps them in balancing their budgets, their economy better. So when you look from this point of view, the now the and they also use SPR to release pressure during the oil price rise uh, during the early part of the conflict. And now they don't have even reserves for, if I'm right, like 16 days or 18 days. It's a disaster. I mean, the, the word is strategic petroleum reserves. The word never says clean petroleum reserves. The word never says cheap petroleum. It's a strategic. And strategic means it is done for a purpose. So I have, I'm sorry to say, but I mean, US has completely lost plot on how to manage the SPR and they will pay a price for it. And they will pay a big price for it in, in, in days to come at some point of time. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you made. I mean, the SPR levels are down at level. It's it's at a level we haven't seen since 1985. It's like you said, it's just over two weeks worth of supply, assuming there isn't some big increase in demand for some reason. Like, you know, maybe some event happens and a lot of people want to go to the city, you know, want to leave the city or something. Who knows? I mean, there's all kinds of things that could drive demand for oil that are unexpected. And so, as you point out, we don't have enough supply here. I've, I've heard in other countries as well that their oil reserves um, in European countries, for example, are at levels they haven't seen in eight or 10 years, uh, that they're all so low. And it does come back to some degree to, like you said, this sort of idea that we can pretend our way out of an energy crisis. The fact is that we're going to be using petroleum and other hydrocarbon-based energy for decades to come, and probably at increasing global quantities for the points you made, that we have other countries that are you know, coming into a more developed economy. They're going to be using more energy as they grow, and yet we're not really dealing with that reality. Does this structurally spell out over the long Long term, with the lack of investment, the lack of investment in exploration, in production, and then you know governments sort of frowning, not just here but in many parts of the world, uh, on any kind of hydrocarbon production, and then companies wanting to return capital to shareholders rather than do production or exploration. Does this kind of set us up for a future of more structural scarcity as oil is concerned for you know a decade plus to come? So I think. Um, uh- Mehem, you are you are absolutely right on that. So two things I think which have, we have to take in mind is the first thing is the if you need to fill your tank, you need to fill your tank. 
so main thing is that in order to kill the demand somebody has to fundamentally kill the demand and the way to kill it is they either replace it with something or you just don't make it available for some reason the western countries are opting for the option two so that is one the second thing is if european countries and uh, us doesn't take control of the production of oil uh but they are still using oil at the end of the day it is more power to opec because russia is kind of hampered now of course i mean there are countries which still imports oil from russia for example china and india uh but the the control of uh, uh energy pricing from western countries will wane so that is one the second part is when you talk about transition you know transition is a long journey and if you are going to replace oil and gas with other sources of energy we are talking of like hundreds of mega capital project and these mega capital project has to be delivered on time on budget and with the with the kind of attainment they are promising okay now how how much confidence we have in western countries to deliver mega capital project on budget on time the answer is zero they haven't done it forever so even if they manage to get everything done Uh, what they are proposing, uh, and even if they manage to do it in uh, even in ten plus year, like if they are saying we can do it in twenty and then thirty, I would say that's a victory. Okay, they don't have that kind of a pro- mega capital project management support. The supply chains are not there. Okay, we are seeing the supply chain issues that are emerging nowadays in in uh, in giant uh, wind wind turbines issues. So there is there are a lot of energy transition that exists on slides. and in excel sheets and in uh, policy documents but when it comes to actually see the work behind it that's not there and people are not ready to acknowledge it i mean i am someone who has been for energy transition forever i mean i it, it to me it is important because until and unless you you create this energy transition okay you cannot change the structure of the power in the world and that's my view all the time i mean i said that you need to change the geopolitical structure of the world you need to change how energy is produced and how energy is consumed there is no other way you can do it now if you don't do it at the end of the day someone has to pay for it okay now i is western world going to consume less energy probably not so at the end of the day if east start using more energy there is there is there is more demand than supply somebody has to pay the price and to to me it looks like that in that particular case uh, the western world has made has declared so many parties untouchable they have they have long walls of virtue signaling at this particular time um, it will create a kind of a backlash and at the end of the day that will have an impact on the timeline of energy transition which is said Yeah, I, I 100% agree with what you're saying. And in 2021, we had the least discoveries of of new oil resources in about 70 years. And yet, to build the transition that I'm fully in support of as well, we do need oil, right? We need to have an abundance of energy to start to unlock other kinds of energy. And it just doesn't seem like there's the effort to to get that done. It seems like if anything, there's the antithesis, as you said, the sort of will to fight against the inevitable. We we're going to need energy to produce energy elsewhere. And yet there's this sort of idea of, well, if we just sort of imagine a bridge to the future, we'll somehow end up on the other side without doing any of the work. I agree. I mean, energy transition was supposed to be a movement. It has become a cult. And when it's a cult, then you don't have to declare logic you just say okay it is like this and these are your testament just uh, just shove it through through your throat see we need energy transition for very simple reasons first world need more energy 
okay if whole of the world has to increase the energy capacity by four oil cannot supply it so it's not just only about that okay we we need to replace oil we need to the focus should be how to increase energy consumption per person because if we see the prosperity per country prosperity per society with the energy consumption it's a very linear chart you consume more energy that means these societies in general are going to be largely more prosperous so the the, the way it is being uh, done as of today is can we use esg and energy transition to create another soft geopolitical pressure rather than moving towards okay uh, we have to do it we have to do it because all of us need to have a clean environment so the the face is different and the effort is different and that is where i mean if you see that uh, uh, there is a lot of backlash we see what happened with with blackstone we see that snp recently decided to drop the esg criteria and and i i know this in detail because last year i was working with one of the fund to to launch one of the esg fund and the criteria was there are few people in 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 wall street and silicon valley and a couple of policy institutes they say this is esg and end of story there is no inclusive discussion around it i mean think from my point of view i mean i mean like if my client is in indonesia and i show them esg ratings of the company and they ask me that why these few companies have high esg ratings and i they don't do anything different and i say oh, because they have uh, shown endorsement for certain causes now for them those causes doesn't go them in their religious belief so they cannot invest in those things so and and there is no there is no scope of discussion for these things so if we want uh, less volatility in energy if we want uh, uh, more predictability in how the energy transition is going to happen i think people have to be open to come to to be more diplomatic and come to discuss things on table despite their differences we used to do this i mean 60s 70s 80s uh, governments were coming on table and discussing topics which which were very difficult and they were finding out some way to to move forward but somehow in this current decade we have become a society where uh, to sit somebody uh who has a different opinion is just not thinkable uh, this is this is and energy industry will suffer because of it because it's a, it's a global commodity and uh, it's a, it's a key source for economies moving forward so let's see how it it, it all plays out thanks sachin and thank you for being so blunt it's good to actually hear from someone who speaks their mind about these things sometimes we think that we're the only people who are speaking our minds out here so it's good to have a friend on in our corner um i know i remember that uh, you and i discussed shale oil i know you have some strong views about it i know um but there's not a lot that's been you, you know being discussed about shale oil recently and i think if you you explain it really well you know the industry um so what i'd like to hear from you is a little bit you know like an explainer about you know how shale oil works and whether it's you know something that would be you viable um for us in overall okay i think let me just make it very simple aisha so the i think first part we need to understand is like why shale oil revolution happened because that is the key part in understanding uh, why we move what what can happen moving forward so in subsurface actually you know you have to over i mean like super simplify i mean the the oil is actually produced in shale and then over the time some of this oil actually transfer uh to 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 sedimentary or 
carbonate wraps. I mean, it, it moves out of shale. But so majority of oil still stays in shale. So if you have to ask me like in general that uh, the shale has the, the maximum oil in the world then compared to what carbonates and sedimentary basin has. So that's period. But the thing is, shale doesn't have permeability. So you cannot make it flow. And that's the challenge. So this is what we always say in geology is that how to extract oil from source rock. And that became the kind of a holy grail. So there were different technologies that we use. Okay, you can frack. So there are fractures uh, that can. So there were things in the sideline that always stayed. Uh, but, you know, shale oil never became a big thing before 2009. So there is something happened in 2007 in US. Uh, that is a change in the SCC criteria for defining reserves. And SCC expanded how you can define reserves and it expanded the criteria to include the new and advanced technology-based seismic characterization. And that time people don't realize because what it will make. But then also like 2007-8, we had the financial crisis and which is followed by extensive uh, quantitative easing. Also at that particular time, like the, the oil price and the oil industry has a bit of shock due to... Uh, so the pricing on the services especially on the uh, on the second tier and third tier companies they managed to drop a lot so uh, there is drop in pricing in terms of uh, directional drilling the fracking become more commoditized there is there are better ways uh, to declare uh, reserves okay and which has high impact on how the reserves in shale oil uh, field has been determined and then you have a lot of easy money that was coming from the QE. So think from, so the the industry point was that unit cost of production for shale oil is high. So there is no point going after it. This is how Exxon was thinking. This is how Schlumberger was thinking. Uh, sh uh, this is one of the reasons that the shale oil revolution started with the small companies. And they were like winners came later on like Chesapeake uh, and other companies. But then, but there was a... What people don't realize at particular time that the risk profile is different. So let me put it this way, that you can generate a $5 uh, per barrel oil in different places, but to build that kind of project, you need seven to 10 years of investment. And then in like ninth year and 10th year, you will start getting the oil. So your unit cost is, is done, but your cash drawdown is very high. So your risk profile is different. Okay. And you know, as an analyst, a lot of time we are so much focus on the unit cost. Now think from a, a very different model. Say you have a lot wide range. Somebody comes to you and say, I want to drill a well and uh, test something here. If it comes, then we'll go and develop it. We'll, we'll share it. You have no exposure in that kind because somebody else is putting money. The person comes, it's a land well. He's using cheap technologies. He can cheaply drill three or four wells in four or $5 million. He established the reserves. He get a reserve audit. He used the new, uh, the, the criteria that SEC has done to recognize the reserves and reserve certification. Banks are ready to give you loan. So he knows that, okay, now I have to start producing. He knows what's the pricing look like for the next seven, eight years. He knows what the cost of capital look like. And he can lock some of the returns immediately by selling futures in the market. So suddenly you created a kind of an arbitrage market for you where you lock profit even before you start consuming and committing all the capital. So the, the risk portfolio for this kind of model was very different from a project where you are investing 50 or $60 billion and the returns have to come, uh, for example, in, in 10 years down the line. I mean, all we have seen, some of the large FLNG and LNG projects that 
lot of large measures have messed up so the moment this model was uh, the established now the there was a big problem is because you see that the way it is working it's a bit dirty cheap technology small players so lot of oil and gas companies stayed away from it because there they take a lot of pride in in deploying a new technology advanced technology and then like this kind of revolution happened in between 2009 and 2013 it was completely out of uh, everybody's nobody has seen that kind of oil production rise in us like forever at that particular time everybody realized that what is happening here and since then like over the time Uh, because market was running quite ahead of itself like during the downturn a lot of these acreage was acquired by larger companies so the acreage is not as distributed as it used to be so that kind of revolution cannot happen also some of the premium shale oil uh, basins have already been produced and uh, still but still there is plenty of there and over the time the companies have become more cost efficient there is more technology there are more workflows people have more experience so shale oil still can add quite significant and quite reasonable amount of oil if committed and at the end of the day this commitment has to come now from large companies because they hold the most of the acreage at this particular time the problem here is that they don't have incentive to do that and that is why they are returning a lot of a lot of money back as a buyback or a, or dividends and that's the pickle okay and you see oil is 80 dollar okay we used to say shale oil is 55 60 dollar per barrel people make it even more cost competitive by moving it to 30 35 why it is not coming back because the policies are not in the favor so at the end of the day uh, if you do not unleash the shale oil okay you cannot wean off the power of opec see only time opec has lost control over the oil pricing when there was an abundant shale oil and then what happens like if you are producing a lot of oil then the oil price is 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 less volatile they are in a in a kind of a mid to lower range so a lot of people at that particular point have no incentive investing in oil and gas company and they think look for oil because if you invest in renewables then you are getting low return but at a low risk if you want high return then you go to tech and so basically what happens in that kind of a bubble oil and gas companies are serving not any kind of investors not high risk not low risk and that particular window becomes good for them for renewable companies but we have now turned it around we have made oil and gas companies very attractive for investors okay so this is uh, so so i mean i have a lot of belief in in a shale oil and what it can do i mean i i don't expect that it can uh it can create an impact like it did in 2009 2013 with that kind of rapid pace but it can definitely uh, help in changing the scenario of oil geopolitics if it is unleashed okay and if somebody tells me that uh, producing in oil in uh, us has uh, uh, more carbon footprint than what you are doing in venezuela i mean i i can't believe it either you stop using oil and you say okay we stop using it and if you can't do it then you have to figure it out how to do it responsibly okay so i mean uh, i'm a pragmatic person okay uh, i am i'm not a cult followist i mean i i wish we stop using oil and gas and fossil fuels in time but uh, not at the cost of uh, jeopardizing the society and uh, civilization as we know it
Yeah, Sacha, and I, I agree 100% with what you're saying. There are such good points, and, and it gives me an opportunity to segue in a different direction, but a similar conversation, and that is natural gas, because it does bring up conversations about shale and fracking. It also brings up conversations about the sustainability of our current energy grid, and really not just ours, but many around the world, if we're going to be plugging in more and more cars to it to uh, charge overnight and the other kinds of sort of upscaling and living conditions that we're seeing. And for example, in Texas, just uh, last Sunday, the energy price rose to 800% of the prior day because of the heat wave, because of the grid's inability to keep up. And they're 44% of their powers coming from natural gas. So what do you think about where we are with natural gas? You know, there's a lot of denial about how important it is. There's a lot of people that are trying to downplay uh, how much we need to produce to really keep things going. But it sounds like, you know, this is another fuel that we're not going to be able to get away from for at least several decades. If we embark upon that renewable transition, natural gas is likely to be a very important part of it. So if anything, we need more. I agree. I mean, uh, actually, we should be using a lot more natural gas than we are using at this particular time, because first, it allows you to offset a lot of oil. I think the challenge that comes with the natural gas is, um, see, it's, it's more inelastic. That means in order to create natural gas economy, the kind of infrastructure you need, the kind of uh, commitment, the gas sale agreement, a lot more parties have to agree on that part. And you cannot just change it on demand, as we saw in the case of uh, Russian-Ukraine conflict that Europe really struggled for it. So because it is more inelastic, then that means the, 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 the volatility in the pricing is going to be much higher. And the only way you can actually offset the volatility if there are abundant supply. So it goes back to the same point that if you really want to ensure that you don't see these shocks of oil and gas, and especially in terms of gas, you need more resilient supply. And one way to have resilient supply is to have some extra capacity in order to have it. And margins are not bad, actually, at this particular point. So if we are only producing and we are expecting that uh, uh, that whatever we have can cover the base load as well as the variable load all the time, uh, that's fine. But the moment it, it suffers... And there is no replacement or there is no, no future roadmap that how to, to replace this. Uh, these shocks are going to stay with us. Okay, And my understanding is that in Western countries, these shocks are actually going to increase. Uh, because the plan, whatever they have and whatever I have seen so far in terms of replacing the uh, or maintaining the natural gas supply, uh, they don't look very robust to me. Okay, There is a lot of corner cutting in terms of timing and project delivery and execution and someone like me who has done mega capital projects on oil and gas uh, these things don't happen as easily as as they are shown in powerpoint and excel so my understanding is every nine months ten months we will have a shock like this that price goes 800 percent 2000 percent and then it stays like that and then suddenly after like three months it suddenly collapse so it, it and it's it's very detrimental for the market in general and, you know, when the market has a lot of volatility, the investors need return in in proportion to that. If they don't get return, then they don't like investing in that. So overall, what will happen is that the market sentiment in terms of investing in large scale oil and gas project and predominantly gas and LNG uh, will go down. Then what will happen is that at the end of the day, you will see that government is kind of subsidizing and funding a lot of these projects. And when government does project, forget it that it can ever finish on time. 
so uh, yeah the gas shocks to me are going to stay continue and every every 6 months 12 months we are going to see a a zolt somewhere in 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 the markets at some point of time that's really interesting um so but you, i i think we're we're also getting like other pressures you know uh, what do you think about this new news that came out of, about australia and the strikes and all of these things um i know it's like coming out of nowhere or maybe there was a history there who knows but um, do you think something like this can continue i think it is going to actually increase my understanding is there so 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 i think one thing we have to and again i mean i, I don't want to be politically correct here I, let me be just as direct as possible see uh, on the two aisle of the political side there is one aisle their idea is that they use the energy transition instead of doing energy transition they made it a political weapon okay that means everything is linked to it on the other side there is a there is a large uh, group which says ki energy transition is not even needed and unfortunately both of these groups are leading in their political aisles so which leads a lot of dissatisfied people there a lot of policies decisions are been made worldwide uh, which are not very th- which are not well thought of so there is going to be a lot of backlash and we are seeing that this backlash is coming in different forms in different countries uh, and it's it's to me it's going to continue i mean we saw what happened in 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 netherlands we saw what happened in canada in general uh these kind of and australia is just a start of it uh, my understanding is if you do not have open channel and open discussion with people and you can actually discuss with them how it is going to affect them what are the incentives you are providing them you just go and you say okay it is like this and just shove it through their throats i mean i'm sorry people are not going to take it if that is how we are going to do energy transition and to be fair i am not a part of it then i energy transition is needed but uh, this is not how it is to be achieved because neither of the parties actually looking for it it's just a weapon for them uh, to make some political ground and at some point of time more and more people will resist to it i hope it doesn't become kind of a negative connotation where people just think that energy transition or esg is being used as a way to control them because that's how it is turning out to be and that is one narrative we one narrative we, we really need to ensure that esg and energy transition shouldn't turn into that and at this particular point it's a real threat you're absolutely right i think more than a threat you pointed out some important things and i think we're already heading towards that way right where we're using esg more like a weapon than anything else um so it's absolute you're absolutely right when you say that you know we should stand up to it i i don't know how we can personally but definitely by talking about it more and making sure that you know people are aware that this needs to be done the right way versus you know just using it as you know let's say a bargaining chip you know um so you're absolutely right so the one way i think at least uh, uh, we all can contribute is at least sharing our opinion because the problem what is happening like you go to social media linkedin and all i mean there is so much virtue signaling that even if people know that is something is is concerning they don't say it because it's it paints them in a bad picture because no, nowadays the world you live in that either you comply 100% and you you don't comply one thing then you are the right winger so because of that lot of us don't share their opinion even though we understand that this is not going in the right direction i think the first point to start with is that if things are wrong somebody has to say somewhere that boss we need to change how we how we are doing these things 
And I hope, uh, I mean, I, I'm up for, like I said, I'm up for 100% energy transition and I stated my reasons as well. Uh, but the way it is happening, I do not trust that people who are leading the energy transition uh, mandate, they actually care for it. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and sort of make this a little bit more actionable in the sense that we wanted to talk a little bit about where to invest. So what companies you're looking at, if you are, and what companies you like, anything you want to, you know, share with us, uh, and you are able to share with us, uh, that would be great. I mean, like, if you ask me about oil and gas, uh, um, see, in OFS sector, I mean, I'm always a big fan of Shlambaja. Okay, I mean, and, and, and I cannot say it because without any bias, I mean, it's in Shlambaja, what you call is a blue blood, that means you stay in Shlambaja for a while, you get a blue blood uh, around it. Uh, see, Schlumberger of today, and you know, I, I cannot criticize the company because it's like family and you have to wash your dirty laundry within family. But Schlumberger of today is not the Schlumberger of 10 years back. The DNA has changed. But even with the with even with the current leadership and current DNA, I mean, it's a force to reckon with. Compared to like, if you see in terms of portfolio of digital services, softwares, products, Wireline and everything. I think it is bigger than what you have in Baker and what you have in Halliburton. Halliburton and Baker literally has nothing in comparison to when you talk about the digital and uh, the software portfolios that that actually going to increase. Same thing. So in terms of like talent, in terms of margins, in terms of uh, overall portfolio, uh, it is still the leading company. So if somebody has to make bet in in oil and gas companies, uh, especially on the services side. Uh, my pick is always Schlumberger. And again, I mean, it's just my personal opinion. I mean, no financial advice. But Schlumberger to me is the is the player. And at this particular point, I think it's a, um, it has more upside because in last year rebranding, and I have to be very careful here because I was in part involved in that. I, I mean, especially in the digital and data part. Uh, see, Schlumberger rebranded itself as, as a technology company. And I mean, there are things which I cannot share, but... I mean, I have seen, I know a bit about the vision. When they say about technology company, that means in, in short that they are going to move out of oil and gas. So there is a growth path. There is a path of more investments in AI and data, and they have partnership with some really leading companies. I mean, they have partnership with Microsoft. They have partnership with Cognite. There are partnership with Data Eco, and I know there are some more partnerships about to come in, in, in days to come. So to me, uh, in oil and gas services, that's my pick. Okay. Uh, when there is a, so again, you have to also be careful that oil and gas is a momentum market. That means when make money, everyone makes money because it's it's a supply and demand thing. Okay. But in that momentum, my understanding is that services site, uh, the Shlamaja the will, will probably be in a better position. So now if I go on the operator side, um, see, I have to be very clear. I mean, uh, uh, if I have to pick, I mean, I'll probably tend to pick more Chevron and Exxon over uh, BP and uh, Shell. I think BP and Shell and especially Shell, I mean, see, all companies are printing a lot of money if you see their numbers. But in terms of moving forward the the direction, I think Sh Chevron and Exxon has a more clear direction while BP and Shell is still trying to figure it out how much renewables, let's do more oil now, let's do less oil. So there has been some back and forth that has been ongoing. Okay, these companies will make money. They are... I mean, they are big forces, but in terms of clarity, I think uh, Exxon and Chevron is is my pick. 
uh, there are other companies which i'm extremely uh, uh positive about and there is this one company is not in oil and gas but a sector linked to it then this is offshore uh offshore off wind installation so large offshore farm installation and there's a company in denmark that is called cadler and my understanding is that cadler will become schlumberger of offshore wind installation so this is this is a company to to look for i think they have one of the largest capacity and you know everybody has committed that we will have so many offshore wind farm and when you go and start looking okay who is actually installing it and then you say there are actually very few company and this company is actually leading the race so if you ask me i think their their order book is filled for years to come so that is uh, that is one company i am extremely excited for how do you spell the company it is called c a d e l a r cadler it it used to be blue ocean swire so it used to be the part of swire group which is based in hong kong which also owns cathay pacific and all later on it was renamed and uh, it's been uh, it went ipo on a danish exchange i don't know how much it is still owned by swire group but my understanding is they still have a stake right sizable stake in that so sachin last question before we wrap up i think we've taken enough of your time but uh, not really question but your thoughts let's say so you brought up something called you you brought up ai in this and my understanding about the oil industry is ai could actually be very very beneficial for the oil industry more so than many of the other sectors that we are looking at what are your thoughts around that so aisha i mean i'll completely in line with you i mean my understanding is that ai not only oil and gas in heavy industrial sector okay it is very impactful because uh, see in in large complex operations uh there is a lot of decisions to be made and decisions to be made takes time okay there are different protocols uh different uh, authorities that has to approve it and it takes time and there is a risk profile that is attached with it there is a cost profile that is attached with it and you have seen that uh, the ex ceo of bp himself has said that when they started deploying more and more data solution Uh, integrated a solution with palantir they managed to drop their lifting cost from 14 dollar to 6 dollar i can tell you a lot of these companies will die to do anything to get from 14 dollars to 12 dollars and this guy is coming and saying that we got from 14 dollars to 6 dollars it is completely unheard of so there is a the the potential is huge okay now the the challenge is that in order to unlock it companies have to disrupt how business processes are conducted within the within the company and how operations are conducted and that is where the challenge is because in order so what is happening that we companies need digital transformation but instead of doing digital transformation they are focusing on digitalization of processes so that means doing the same thing but in a digital mode and to me that's waste that's a waste of opportunity so it's not a real transformation it's not a real transformation and they don't agree with it and they don't hide it uh, i mean uh, it's a it's a waste of opportunity few companies are actually managed to do that and i mean i have to take the name of companies like bp of course i mean when you talk about the digital transformation in oil and gas i think bp is is way ahead of anything else everybody is doing i think the company should look to them and because they are they are figuring it out like how to change the whole process itself 
So until and unless you disrupt how business is done, how operations are done using digital and data, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a whitewashing. I mean, you may get some some benefit, but you are leaving large amount of money on the table. I mean, think about $14 to $6. It's a lot of money. If you are producing 2 million barrel a day uh, as, a, as a maser, I mean, that is like 16 million a day. That's huge. I mean, you can free that kind of capital. I mean, you reduce your cost of capital. You you manage to have more uh, activity in day-to-day in, -day in terms of uh, your interventions that you do in the oil and gas field. Your reserves will have an impact of it. I mean, it's it's huge. So why BP can do it, why others cannot do it, just because others are not focusing and working in the same way BP is doing. I mean, it's not like BP is special in any other ways. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation all around. I've certainly learned a lot more about what's going on with the energy dynamics as they're present as they are at present and as they may play out in the years to come. So appreciate your thoughts and your candor. And I would just like to echo what Aisha said that, you know, rarely people do speak their mind. And yet these are important and often difficult conversations to have. And in order to have them properly, we have to be honest about what we're doing wrong. So it's it's really refreshing to hear that. I appreciate it. I know Aisha does too, as she said as much. But as we wrap up here, uh, do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience, any wisdom you'd like to impart about what you see and really just anywhere, anything that's on your mind that you'd like to share? Maybe I think one thing which, I'm, uh, which is on my mind uh, a lot is, my understanding is that whatever inflection points we have discussed in terms of energy, in terms of ESG moving forward, I think the culmination of that will be the next year US elections and whichever party comes. Because their policies are so different from each other, that will have a very big bearing and how the energy market and how the ESG moving forward will look like. Unfortunately, uh, both parties have, have views which are very, which are, which I mean, none of which I would say is right. Okay, but it will have also what happens in US next year that pretty much will define uh, what happens during this decade in, in energy and ESG. And uh, that's one inflection point I'm looking forward and I hope uh, we see some good results. Uh, but let's see how things work out. Yeah, fair point. And, and, and you could probably... Uh say that either way, we're probably going to have some difficulties to deal with no matter which side wins. It's going to be interesting. But I really appreciate you coming out uh, and and sharing your time with us and your thoughts with us. I think this has been an excellent conversation. I'm excited to share it with our audience. And then for people that do want to find you, I know you're taking a break for a bit, but you want to talk a little bit more about how people can find you. And then, you know, of course, we can include some of that information in the show notes as well. People can find me on LinkedIn. I will still be I mean, active a bit on LinkedIn. Uh, my understanding is I need to finalize which project I'm going to do next. And uh, I'll be sharing some more information about that. Uh, I've taken like a complete social break from everything else. I mean, I don't have a lot of social media account, but Twitter is where I was a bit active. Uh, I mean, anything else? Yeah, I don't, I don't exist almost. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, not generally what happens, like when you get into uh, social media mode, there's a lot of discussion. Some people are very good at it. My my view is that I need I need to get quiet when I need to do tough things, so that is the reason I decided to take break and sort it out like what I'm going to do next, and then just uh, get into my nerdy mode, 
shut down the room and just get it finished but i may still be i'm still be on twitter i'm still be on uh, on linkedin uh, but yeah but just a little less active moving forward for for next few months totally understand well best of luck to you on your projects we wish you the very best of success moving forward and we hope that you can join us again sometime to discuss more about what's going on in the world of energy and beyond it would be my pleasure and definitely at some point i'll i'll, I'll join you guys back it's always great to connect with you both and and to learn from you 